This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Monday morning show for you, including the vaccine plan in British Columbia. Now, last week, public officials rolled out the plan for vaccine distribution in B.C., 4.3 million people eligible to get the shot. It is the biggest vaccination plan in Canadian history. But the big question now, who goes first? Now, if you take a look at the plan that was released by officials last week, among the people getting the shot first, of course, residents and staff in long-term care. Then they will move on to phase two of the plan, largely by age. So senior citizens in the province, age 80 or over, set to get the vaccine starting February and March. Hospital staff set to get the vaccine as well. What about some of the other frontline workers though some of them not happy police officers teachers what about dentists dentists making the case to get the vaccine and that's where we start on the show this morning my guest is dr alistair nickel from the bc dental association very pleased to welcome him hi Good morning, and thanks for having me on the show. You bet. Thanks a lot for coming on. Can you tell me your thoughts on the vaccine plan it was, as it was rolled out last week by the officials? Well, I have to say I was somewhat surprised and a little disappointed not to see community health care workers in general being included in the second phase of the rollout. That's in contrast to the... Um, to the guidance from the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, which recognized that uh, healthcare workers that had not been included in the first round should be vaccinated in the second stage. It, it's also, you know, and I, I, think, uh, I think it has to be remembered, dentists and dental uh, office workers, those in direct patient contact, yeah. at the end of the day, are healthcare workers who are dealing with acute and chronic disease every day, and we're doing so in a setting which has a somewhat heightened risk of exposure. Um, you know, we can't, clearly patients can't wear a mask during, uh, during uh, treatment. Uh, right. Social distancing during treatment is, is impossible. And there's still the question, although I, I don't think it's as serious as we thought in, in March, of aerosol generation. So, um, you know, we, we expected that, uh, that community health care workers uh, uh, in general would be, uh, would be uh, vaccinated during that second round. And uh, I think one of the things, too, that we might want to look towards is what's happening in other provinces. Uh, for instance, in Ontario, uh, dental workers are, consi- are being treated as a priority for those reasons I just alluded to. Okay, has there been any spread of COVID-19 in dental, dental offices anywhere in B.C. to this point? Um, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't, there hasn't been any transmission of right. COVID between uh, dental, dental uh, health care providers and patients or vice versa. There have been, of course, uh, some transmissions, but those are the same sort of... Uh, transmissions and risk factors you'd find in any other business related to 
interaction between staff and in, in a more social setting. Well, that's good to hear, and I think it's one of the reasons why the government did not include dentists in this uh, second phase starting next month of the vaccine rollout and going with an age priority system instead. Like, So for someone listening to this right now, could you make the case for them? Let's say they've got uh, a senior, their mom is uh, in their 80s or 90s. Why should a dentist... Uh, get the vaccine first before an aged senior in the province, especially when there's been no COVID spread in dental offices? I think that, uh, I don't think we disagree at all with the fact that the seniors need to, and the vulnerable populations, uh, and, and that appears to be age-related, need to yeah. be vaccinated uh, as well and as soon as possible. But uh, dent, uh, dental offices are providing care to those very vulnerable patients on a daily basis. And so that is uh, an avenue that we're concerned about. And, of yeah. course, you know, just because we're not aware of any transmission doesn't mean that there hasn't been any taking place. Okay, speaking to Dr. Alistair Nickel from the BC Dental Association, he's making the case for dentists to get the vaccine starting next month. Let me play this for you, Dr. Nickel. This is Premier John Horgan uh, talking about the plan that was released last week. I know uh, how people feel about this uh, in almost every sector uh, in the economy. I received mail uh, a couple of inches thick uh, from advocates saying that their particular sector, their particular profession uh, deserved a higher priority. And all of the arguments were very compelling. Every component of our society is important. But the science is pretty clear. Dr. Henry, Dr. Ballin have made that clear today. Age is the, is the dominant determinant factor on severe illness and death. Yeah, I, th I think the last part that he said there is the key, severe illness and death. I mean, that's why they're going with the older population first, uh, Dr. Nickel. So, for example, let's say you're a dentist in your 30s and you get covid uh, I hope nobody gets it in a dentist office, but if it happened, that person would be a lot less likely to die from the disease than an older person who gets it, right? Without a doubt, that's the case. Yeah. And uh, so, the, so tr uh, vaccinating the vulnerable population as a priority makes complete sense. But at the same time, uh, health care providers uh, in general, uh, including those who provide health care in the community, also need to uh, need to be protected and they and it, that is not only to protect themselves but protect the vulnerable population at large okay what do you say to people who are listening to you make the case for dentists to get the vaccine early when so many people in british columbia will remember that dental conference back in march of last year right at the start of the pandemic thousands of people crowded into a convention center i mean i mean you guys basically ran a super spreader event at, at the start at the start of this uh at the start of this pandemic and now you want the shot early a lot of people bringing that point up what do you say to them well i don't think we're talking uh, I, I don't think the two things are related at all that uh, the fact that uh, uh, there was some COVID transmission uh, at that event is of course very unfortunate um, and I think it's, a, it's important to remember that was, as you stated, right at the beginning when we weren't really aware of the fact that some of these events would be as risky as they were. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang well. on a sec now, hang on a sec now, because we did know that this was going to be a risky event. I mean, Dr. Bonnie Henry said later if she had known about this thing, she would have shut you guys down. Okay. And, um, you know, I can't really, I can't really comment on that. I, I can say that uh, the, the uh, organizers of the meeting were in consultation with public health prior to the event, and um, 
they, mm. you know, it was there, there were there were some cases that were linked to it, and of course we regret that. Okay, you've written a letter to the to the officials asking for the the early access to the vaccine. Have you received any response? To the best of my knowledge, we have not had any response yet. The letter went out, I think, uh, on on Friday, and of course, uh, over the weekend things are a little slower, but we're waiting to hear from them. All right, Doctor Nickel, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for the for the chat. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about last week's surprising resignation now of Julie Payette, Canada's Governor General. She resigns after three, just over three years on the job, after a scathing report into allegations of bullying and a toxic workplace at Rideau Hall. That's her official residence in Ottawa. So she resigns after that report comes out. Now think about this. What should be done now uh, as a result of this? Some people looking at the vetting process here for making these appointments. It seems like Trudeau was just kind of dazzled by her star power as a former astronaut. Maybe that's the main reason she got the job. Did they overlook some warning signs here? Uh, that she that should have disqualified her from the job in the first place. Now that she's gone, other questions being raised. Should she receive a pension? How about an expense account? What about the whole office itself? Maybe it's time to get rid of the governor general. Maybe Canada should become a republic and just get rid of the monarchy totally. Let's talk about these issues now with my guest, Don Davies. NDP MP for Vancouver Kingsway. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. How you Don? I'm great, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. What went through your mind when you heard that Julie Payette had resigned after this scathing report into bullying at Rideau Hall? Well, I guess uh, I was of two minds, Mike. Uh, I was uh, somewhat jolted by it because it's it's not every day that you see someone like a governor general resign so abruptly. And the other part of me was was somewhat pleased because you know, the stories that we had heard in Ottawa of dozens, dozens of people who were releasing stories of, of frankly, just completely inappropriate bullying and erratic behavior in, in the highest office of our land uh, made me think that this was an untenable position for her to keep going. So, so I think it's positive for our country that she resigned. What do you think about the, the vetting process that, that went into this appointment or, or lack thereof? I mean, we're starting to hear stories of uh, workplace behavior even before she took the job as, as governor general. This should have been what, raising red flags here, I think, in this appointment. Your thoughts? Well, you're 100% correct. I mean, there was no vetting. This yeah. is the problem. I mean, Prime, Prime Minister Harper set up a committee that was supposed to examine in, in a bit of an objective way potential candidates for some reason or other, Prime Minister Trudeau bypassed that committee completely, and they didn't do any background checks because if they had, they would have seen that not once but twice at two previous employers uh, that Miss Payette worked at, there were significant problems that were not, not secret or hard to find out. And so clearly they didn't do any vetting, and Prime Minister Trudeau was mesmerized by celebrity and image, which I think is often a problem with this uh, federal liberal government. Okay, lots of questions being raised now about what comes next. And former governors general in our country, they got a pretty cushy retirement gig here. I mean, you get a pension, you also get an expense account, 
and not a lot of public disclosure about the money, the amount where this, what the money's being spent on. We've seen former governors general run up some pretty big bills on their expense accounts years after they left office. So let me play this here for you, Don, and get your take on it. This is Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole speaking this morning. He was asked whether Julie Payette should get that expense account now that she's resigned. And here's what O'Toole said. She resigned her role. She should not be able to access the normal courtesies provided to governors generals. Did Prime Minister Trudeau commit to her that she could? Uh, He is trying to save face for a failure on his part Uh, The office, sadly, has been sullied. We are in a minority parliament. Um, We had a very nonpartisan committee that looked at vice-regal appointments. He should go back to that. Okay, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole speaking this morning. Don Davies, what do you think about that? Do you agree with him? I do, I do. And, you know, um, (laughs) I mean, we'll get into cost. Canadians, I think, would be shocked at how many tens of millions of dollars we spend every year supporting previous governors general. Um, But in this case, when you have someone who served three years and resigned basically probably before she was going to be fired, you know, did she really earn $150,000 a year every year for the rest of her life in pension after three years of service? I mean, I've been in office 12 years and I've earned 65 grand a year and people think that's cushy. Um, You know, three years, 150 grand, uh, plus on top that, as you pointed out, you know, she gets in, she gets to run expenses. Uh, I think Adrian Clarkson uh, routinely runs over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Plus, they get seed money of three or four million dollars to start a foundation. Oh. So, you know, I, I I don't think, given the circumstances of Miss Payette's uh, resignation, which was effectively for cause and and in disgrace, you know, I uh, you know the letter of the law might be that she's entitled to it, but it doesn't seem ethical or right. Hundred and fifty thousand a year for life pension. After three years on the job, my God, that that is incredible. And then an expense account on top of it. And I think one of the things that kind of adds insult to injury to that is there's a real lack of public disclosure around those expense accounts, right? Well, that's right. I, I think that only expenses over $100,000 a year are publicly reported. So uh, a governor general, and how many of them are alive right now? I mean, we've got a number of them. You know, they could be billing routinely eighty five, ninety thousand 90000 a year just in expenses. Right. Uh, on top of the 150000 on top of the millions that they got to start their foundation. I, I think it's time we really reviewed the whole setup. Unbelievable. Okay, speaking to Don Davies, NDP MP for Vancouver Kingsway. All right, here's here's the big question. Should Canada just scrap the whole thing? Should we just retire the monarchy, uh, become a republic, get rid of the governor general, bring in some other kind of head of state? What do you think? Well, I, I've long thought so. I mean, uh, I'm going to hedge that, Mike, with a couple of comments. One is I don't think it's the number one pressing issue in Canada. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a priority. There's lots of other things more important than that. But if you're asking me in theory and structurally, in the 21st century, should Canada have as a head of a state um, a monarch from a different country, from our colonial past, based on heredity, you know, heredity, uh, I think those are concepts that are of the 18th century and they're not in keeping with a modern 21st century economy. On the other hand, you know, I, I do recognize and appreciate the deep tradition and history that the monarchy plays in Canada. And so I respect the position of those that, you know, that, that take a lot of solace in it. But if you're asking me, if you have a democracy, we should be electing our heads of state, not appointing mm. them uh, based on who their mother and father are. 
Okay, well, a lot of people will make the argument that having Queen Elizabeth as the Queen of Canada has worked pretty well for a long time. We've had some pretty effective and honorable governors general in the past. We've had some really good lieutenant, lieutenant governors at the provincial level. Uh, and a, a lot of people will look at that tradition and say, look, this has been, this has been working pretty darn well for a long time. So why would you, why would you change it? Well, that's true. I, I have a, a really good friend of mine who's a real lefty, and, and he, he disagrees with me profoundly on this, and he always says, look, the monarchy doesn't work in theory. <laughs> uh, so, you know, my theoretical arguments, I guess, I think are correct, but in practice, it does work fairly well. Um, but I think we have to rise above this, Mike. It's not, like right now, I think there's enormous respect for the Queen. You know, she has sure. conducted herself with grace and skill for decades, I think is enormous um, admiration for her. So this isn't a question of personalities or whether this person or that person is good or bad. Uh, for instance, I think when, you know, if and when King Charles ascends the throne, mm-hmm. people may think quite differently. I don't think it should depend on the personality of the person occupying it. I'm just thinking from a de- democratic point of view, uh, yeah. you know, maybe it's time that this is a relic of our colonial past. Maybe it's time uh, that we... we we, I guess, um, worked on our democracy and, and moved it forward, because I do think democracy is a work in progress. I think citizens should always be open well, to examining it and improving it. Maybe that's the next stage for Canada in the 21st century. Okay, okay. well, I think Queen Elizabeth is widely admired by a lot of people. I'll agree with you on that. And it's certainly not her fault that we had this debacle with uh, Julie Payette here. I mean, you know, Queen Elizabeth appointed Payette as Governor General, but she does so on the advice of the Prime Minister. So this is down to Trudeau that he made this appointment, even though it was officially done by the Queen. You know, he makes the recommendation to her, and then she just rubber stamps it. He should have known. They should have done a way better job vetting her for for this job. If if Trudeau, I want to hear from Trudeau on this on this issue around the expense account and the and the pension. I mean, can can the Canada legally withhold that expense account, or would they have to pass change any laws to do that? We'd have to change laws, Mike, to do that because uh-huh. currently the the legislation. You know, it doesn't distinguish between when or how a, a GG leaves office. It just says yeah. this is what they're entitled to when they leave office. So I think it does require that. And, and Mr. Trudeau, I think he's, I think he's trying to escape responsibility for his role in this. You know, he, he, um, first of all, he claims that she was well vetted. I think that's factually incorrect. And, um, he doesn't seem to take responsibility for his role in appointing her. I mean, the buck's got to stop somewhere. It should stop with the prime minister. This was his choice. It was a terrible choice and he should own it. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the resignation of the Governor General last week, is it time to just get rid of the whole thing? Maybe Canada should become a republic, get rid of the monarchy. My guest is Don Davies, NDP MP, Vancouver Kingsway. Your calls to him. Lots of calls. Let's get right to them. And we'll go first to Tannis in South Surrey. Hi, Tannis. Hi. Hi, what do you think? I think we should get rid of her. She did a bad job. We shouldn't reward bad behavior. Right. So what do you think about the pension and the, and the expense account? No pension, no expense account. She quit. Yeah, she quit. Okay. Does that make a difference, Don? Do you think that if she resi- like if she served honorably and then and then left up served her full term and then left office, I don't know, you might have a, obviously a stronger a stronger case here. But when you resign under a cloud, does that should that disqualify you from from getting that expense account, that pension? I think so. I agree with Tannis. And I, uh, I, I don't think it's just quitting. I mean, let's say someone got terminally ill or something. I mean, there's reasons to resign. But in this case, she resigned 
in a cloud of disgrace. Oh, yeah. So in those circumstances, I, I don't think she's entitled to the normal, regular um, rewards that come from someone who fulfills their duties. Right. And is that expense account, is that for life as well, like the pension? Yes, it is. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. An expense account for life. What a job. Okay, let's go to David in Coquitlam. Hey, David. Hi, there. Hi, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think the uh, the, um, uh, the monarchy should go. and uh, But... Start the pay, uh, paperwork in place right now and uh, wait till the Queen dies. She's a great lady, and I re- respect the Queen very much. But we, we're, we're big enough to be a republic now. I think we don't need to. We, do, we don't need them anymore. Okay, Sorry. David. Okay, David. Thanks for the call. I think so, have some other countries gotten rid of the monarchy? Don, like, isn't it Barbados is thinking of going that way? Yeah, a few countries have tried. I think there was a referendum, I, I believe, in Australia not so long yeah. ago, and uh, and that's that's the way it should be. By the way, I think it should be put to the a vote of the Canadian people uh, if and when we get to that point. Yeah. Um, and I think it was turned down, to be honest. I think they supported the monarchy, but at least it was a, uh, it was a discussion. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a really important issue that we need to look at in the years ahead. Let's go to Heidi in Kamloops on the line. Hi, Heidi. Hello there. Hi. Um, my opinion is, does it matter if you quick quit or not re-elected again? They should not be entitled to a pension or an expense count because if you have a job and you quit, you don't get anything. You have to find another job and work. Well, I mean, not why should the taxpayers have to pay for their lolly la in Lollyland? <laughs> okay, thank you for the call. Well, I mean, if you quit, look, if you quit a job in the private sector, Don, you don't necessarily write off your pension. I mean you would get the pension that you've contributed to to that point. That's right? true. Yeah, I think you do. You, you, you earn what, you well, know, you yeah. keep what you've earned. But, I mean, I don't think anybody would agree that anybody's earned $150,000 a year after three years of work. I, I mean, mean people, does, she actually, does she actually pay money into that pension plan? You know, that I'm not sure. I'm not sure yeah. if a portion of her, of her salary does go to that. Uh, I know mine does as an MP. A fairly sure. healthy chunk of my salary does. Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Keep calling me on this. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. John in North Van. Hi, John. Um, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but you know what? you got to live and learn. Uh, I don't agree with an expensive account. I'm not sure why that would even be set up because, like, what expenses? She doesn't have the job or position anymore, so an expense account for what? Toilet paper and... Well, let me uh, let me ask Don about that. I mean, you mentioned earlier, Don, that a lot of these governors general they set up a, a what a foundation to do good works for the for the country. Is that what they do? Yeah, there's really two separate things, Mike. One is there's an assumption that when a governor general leaves office, that they will continue to have sort of somewhat official duties for years after. So they'll be asked to speak at conferences and to talk to schools and things like that because of the role they played. So there's a, a, an idea that they should have their expenses reimbursed for that uh, sort of, I guess, continuing public service. Then on mm-hmm. top of that, like I think with the, um, I think it was Adrian Clarkson, they got a grant of, she got $3 million uh, mm-hmm. to start a foundation. So I think it's sort of like a seed money to each departing governor general. And, and it should be said that the, the functions that they, or the foundations that they create are usually very good. You know, they're yeah. usually for, you know, laudable goals. Sure. But uh, those are two separate benefits that a governor general gets on top of their pension. Let's go to Ryan on the line in Abbotsford. Hi, Ryan. Hey, um, I just want to 
Okay, you're break you're breaking up real bad. So we'll try to clean up the connection. I'll try to come back to you if I can, but I I could barely hear you. Let's go to Stan instead in Kamloops. Hi, Stan. Hi. Yeah, Hi. I would just like to comment on the lady getting all the money for three years of service. Yeah. After I serviced f- for forty five years, and I get nowhere near that kind of money, nor do I get a, a expense account for the rest of my life. What How did you do? Possible that somebody can do that. What kind of job did you do when you were working? Well, I did all kinds of jobs, but yeah. I did them in if working for the city and working for the the government, and then I went into construction for myself. Uh, like I've done tons of different kinds of jobs, but I never get that kind of pension. Okay, Sam. And thank, I listened thank, to one thank, of your comments earlier. Yeah. From one of your ladies, lady comments there. Yeah. That she, uh, you get lose your pension when you leave the place. Well, it's true. You do lose your pension when you leave the place. Well, no, that's not correct. But th- thank you for the call, though, and I hope you're enjoying your retirement stand. Thank you for calling, uh, Don. Interesting topic. Thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for your time. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the homeless crisis in the city of Vancouver now. And it's a problem that's accelerated by the lack of public bathroom facilities in the city. And it's not just Vancouver that faces this issue. Lots of cities around British Columbia and across Canada dealing with the same thing. When you have more homeless people on the street, many of them are going into coffee shops looking for a place to get warm and dry, looking for a place to use a public bathroom facility. And it creates problems, including at the JJ Bean coffee shop in Vancouver. And this is one, there's been lots of problems in this particular coffee shop. Staff being harassed by people coming into the store. They actually had someone commit suicide in the bathroom in that coffee shop. How can this situation be improved? Have a listen to this story now. This is from Global BC. You're going to hear from the manager of the JJ Bean Coffee Shop here, Julian Bentley. These bathrooms often harbor... More surprises than I'd like. Uh, It's not uncommon to open the store and see something problematic. Overdoses, mental health episodes, or the space desecrated by trash, needles, and frequently human waste. Complex social problems not found in the barista training manual. Quite frankly, I'm not qualified to deal with it, and neither are my staff. I think we're starting to be expected to be first responders, social workers, uh, crisis managers, um, in addition to our conventional job, which is actually just making coffees. 
Okay, how can the situation be improved? That's certainly not a good situation there for the J.J. Bean Coffee Shop at the corner of East 14th Avenue and Main Street in Vancouver. The staff there are saying they're dealing with verbal abuse, assault. Just this week, someone threw a burning log at the storefront window. There's big problems there. Could we make things better if we had more public bathrooms where people can use? Let's talk about this issue now with my guest, Leslie Lowe, author of No Place to Go, How Public Toilets Fail Our Private Needs. Very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Mike. How's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, I, I think your book is, is really interesting. I read an op-ed that you wrote about this issue. Can you tell me your thoughts? When you hear this story about this particular coffee shop in Vancouver and the problems associated with the, the public bathroom there, one of the few in the neighborhood, uh, I'm sure this is a story you've heard many, repeated many times before. Yeah, yeah, it's, pretty, it's a pretty grim situation, it sounds like. I guess what yeah. strikes me most is it's not a public bathroom. It's a publicly accessible bathroom. And I think that that's kind of the fundamental thing to remember. In Canada, we're used to a high level of publicly accessible access. So like McDonald's, Starbucks, any coffee shops, libraries, rec centers. We don't have a really big culture of on-street public bathrooms, which is to say, you know, paid for by taxes, part of the municipal infrastructure that we all know we need to make use of cities. And so when you when you have that kind of culture publicly available or accessible versus public, then inevitably problems come up. Okay, I know in the course of researching your book, you looked at a lot of different cities uh, when it comes to the public bathrooms that you that in in different cities. What did you find out? Is this pretty similar from city to city in North America? Yeah, it's it's pretty similar um, in North America for sure. It's the same thing. It's that you know we rely on coffee shops and we rely on malls and and rec centers. Um, and so what's interesting is, you know, the need is never going to go away. People need bathrooms in order to live their lives in cities. And people who are, for example, experiencing homelessness are going to need yeah. higher levels of access than people who are not. But, you know, the need is literally never going to go away. So it's funny that a lot of the problem solving is like, you know, you do not want to put that onus on baristas who are there to make coffee and just, sure. you know, do their jobs. But, you know, locking the bathrooms is not going to work because people still have to go. And, you know, the only thing that really helps is when municipal governments step up and try to help solve the problem by through provision of public bathrooms. Okay, when it comes to the publicly accessible bathrooms that we have right now, do you think that there's any kind of gender imbalance there? Like you write in your book about how it's not unusual to see more women waiting longer to use to use a, a public bathroom, yep. right? And like for yep. most for most guys, you know, they would look at that. Well, you know, when women are going to the bathroom, of course, it's going to take longer because they're uh-huh. doing hair and makeup and yeah, et cetera. Our lipstick. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, is that I mean, is that fair or how do you no, how do you an- analyze it? Okay. Um, so I'll explain the pub, the bathroom lineups. Um, women take okay. <laughs> about twice as long to use the bathroom as men. So biologically, it takes us longer to empty our bladders. Right. We don't use urinals, so we have to go into a stall, shut the door, lock the door. Usually the doors take a minute, like, you know, a few seconds to lock. We have to remove more clothing. So all right. of that adds up to about 90 seconds, let's say, to urinate versus about 45 for men. There's There are studies that have shown this. So that's one thing that tells you right there, okay, there's yeah. going to be more women waiting. The other thing is, if you look at most buildings built like, you know, 
60s or earlier, which is many municipal buildings and even some later, you see binary bathrooms. So male, female, side by side, same floor space. And in a women's, I can fit three stalls. In a men's, I can fit four urinals and two stalls. So men frequently have double the provision and women have half and women need about twice as much. So that's where the lines come up. It's not our lips. (laughs) <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, on the on the other hand, like you know, guy guys can urinate just standing up. So I mean, it's just kind of uh, you know, just just the basic fundamentals of floor space for a, a urinal as opposed to a stall. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, are you saying that women women's bathrooms should be larger? Yep, they need to yeah. be. They need to. Ha- they need to be bigger. That's just yeah. a fact of if you want the provision, you know, you want equity, then the bathroom size has to be bigger. Right. What about gender-neutral bathrooms? You see more of those now. Is that a good yeah, idea? Um, those are a great idea, so long as there's also um, a binary options. So, you know, some women do not want to or cannot because of, you know, their religion. They can't share intimate space with people of the opposite gender. So you do need that separation. But I think that, you know, we know that trans individuals face harassment and physical violence sometimes using bathrooms that match their gender expression. So it is really important to have space for everybody. Right. I think it's kind of a a local civic planning issue that maybe people don't don't think about as much as we should. But I mean, you can we can see the results and the, and the turmoil and then the problems that it's causing right now, especially in the city of Vancouver with the big homeless crisis going on with, yeah. this, with this coffee shop we just heard about. So do you think that this is kind of a, I don't know, like an overlooked issue that civic planners should be looking at? There should be more public bathrooms available? Yeah. And, and you know what? Municipal leaders don't talk about it either. That's, there's a real kind of gap in that. Um, and the, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is people are embarrassed. They, you know, they don't want to talk about it because it's deeply private things that we do in bathrooms. But we all do those things, so we should be talking about it. Um, and and the other thing is, you think about who are who are the people who are more likely to be in municipal politics. Those are people who are less likely to have issues finding bathrooms. So mm-hmm. so there's this double thing. It's like nobody wants to talk about it, and also it seems like it's not even worth talking about because really what most of the people who are in charge of making decisions are dealing with is not waiting in line. Like, you know, there's more men than women in municipal politics, I'm sure across Canada. Um, They're not experiencing homelessness. And then we hear these stories on the news, like the one you're talking about, this particular cafe. And it seems like that's, that's an extreme social problem. It's not this kind of major fundamental flaw in the way our cities are designed. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of coffee shops and restaurants, or certainly coffee shops that might not even have a bathroom available, certainly not for uh, for someone who's not a paying customer. So for this yeah, particular yeah. this particular coffee shop, JJ Bean in Vancouver, I know the city was saying like, well, we're, we're grateful to you that you're supplying uh, a publicly accessible <laughs> bathroom in your place. That's great. But I wonder if the, if the problem continues to be overlooked, if you would see maybe more restaurants, cafes, coffee shops just start saying like, we're closing our bathroom or, or it's for customers only. Right. But I mean, imagine, okay, but just saying that right there, imagine yeah. a world in which you decided that the Starbucks on a given street corner was going to be in charge of the street light that was in front of it and, and mm. the sidewalk and every other piece of infrastructure in front of it. We would never do that. We would never say like, oh yeah, if the bulb goes out, you guys pay for the bulb. If a car hits it, you guys are going to replace it. We would never expect a private business to, to step up and do that because it seems something 
we pay for automatically with our taxes because it's necessary for the city. Bathrooms are no different. Yeah. Do you think that maybe municipalities are hesitant to provide more public bathrooms because they're they're worried that they might be, uh, I don't know, a magnet for crime or, or people overdosing or using drugs? Yeah. I mean, bathrooms are highly complex social spaces. Um, but if cities are worried about those things, they have, you know, they're, that's, yes, they should be worried, but it's also a huge red flag that they need to do a really good job of designing them to prevent those problems. And there are, there are ways to avoid those problems in bathrooms, but they're costly. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend public bathrooms are cheap. They're not cheap, but they're fundamental to our use of the city. What, what would be some of the ways to avoid the problems? Um, I mean, it depends on the individual situation, but yeah. it, but looking at um, having attendance in bathrooms, and yeah. it's not, you know, that you're being surveilled necessarily, but just somebody who's there, so you know there's an eye on the place. Um, there's a bathroom that went in actually mid-COVID. It was an odd, odd timing, but it got so much press in Tokyo. It was a bathroom that was transparent, completely transparent, so you could see huh. it was a safety issue, you could see nobody was in it. As soon as you shut the door and turned the light on, the walls became opaque. Oh. But when it was open, you could see in. So that, if, you know, that avoids issues of, you know, if somebody's an IV drug user and they overdose in there, it's just going to be caught immediately. You can't, you know, nobody's going to be, wow. you know, engaging in sex work. All of those things are avoided in that kind of thing. So there are solutions. Cities generally, though, don't want to, talk about finding those solutions because it means confronting all these really complex social and health issues. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about public bathrooms and the shortage of them with my guest, Leslie Lowe, author of No Place to Go, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Lots of calls. Let's get right to them. Donnie in Nanaimo. Hey, Donnie. Hey, how's it going today? Good. What do you think? Well, the idea that more public bathrooms is a great idea, but they need to put in some more facilities to help with mental health and drug addiction. Because I worked in the downtown core and I'm on and off for over 20 years. Yeah. And any public bathroom or restaurant bathroom is constantly getting assaulted by the drug addicts or people with mental health. Yeah. They use it more as a personal stall or to do their business. And then they tend to leave blood or needles on the wall. I've found them in the ceiling before. So more bathrooms is great, but unfortunately them being public unless there's more help for mental health and drug addictions in these downtown cores these bathrooms are just going to get overtaken trashed and then you're going to find more people overdosing because i worked in a restaurant and i dealt with free overdoses in 10 years wow yeah and, and every time it's because people are just breaking in to use the bathrooms to do their drugs and even when locks were put on the doors and for paying customers only there was so much verbal abuse. I actually even got assaulted at one point because I wouldn't let a person use the bathroom because you could tell he was clearly high as a kite and wanted to use drugs in there. Yeah, so yeah. more bathrooms would be a great idea, but we need some help to get the help these street people so it can be safe for all to use. That's all. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. Thank you. Thanks for a great call. Leslie, what do you think of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah. I mean, that's part of what I talk about when I'm talking about the complexity is it's, it, it's a bigger picture that we need to, we need to sort of confront several issues that will help make bathrooms safer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these are like, you need a, a, this is a complex problem and you need a multifaceted response to deal with it. I mean, I think more bathrooms is a great idea, but you need more than that. Let's go to Ken and Langley. Hey, Ken. Hey, how's it going? Good. What do you think? Uh, well, just listening to that last caller, I have another comment from, aside from what I was initially calling about. Uh, so yeah. let's start with that. 
Uh, I'm a a service technician, so I'm on the road a lot, uh, going in and out of people's homes and businesses. And washrooms has always been a problem. Um, just on the, on the general public side, like I, I prefer not to use someone's washroom when I'm in their house trying to fix something. Yeah. Uh, so I rely on, on gas stations or stores or whatever. And that kind of leads into the next thing is, yeah, some of the gas station washrooms are disgusting because they're, you know, they're being used for not washroom purposes. Yeah. Um, even at the beginning of COVID there, North Vancouver, I guess their municipality shut down all public use washrooms. I, I, was, oh. I had a bathroom emergency. I had to go in a bush under an overpass. And I was like, oh. I, this is awful, awful. <laughs> um, but I had no choice. It was either that or in my pants kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And to the effect of like, you know, the, the drug use and all that stuff, it's, I don't know that there is a great way, but you know, there's, there's people have put in like the, the purple blue lights kind of thing to, you know, hide the veins. Um, one thing I haven't seen that I thought might be a good idea. And I don't know if, if this is the right venue to bring it out, but uh, you know, like have a, a timer on an occupancy sensor that just blares out a noise that makes it really uncomfortable for anybody to stay there for more than 10, 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, Ken, get thank- them out of there. Thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, well, yeah, complex issue and uh, public public urination, pu- people going to the bathroom in in public is just it's becoming a bigger bigger problem. As, as crazy as, as as kind of disturbing as it sounds, it's a problem. We got to deal with it. David in South Van. Hey, David, we've got a minute left. Good morning. Yeah, even yeah. like you know, we had Expo eighty six. You know, a, a transportation uh, theme fair for Canada put Vancouver on the map and you can't even go wash from a, a SkyTrain station, let alone find hand sanitizer uh, to wash your hands outside there. They've placed those units on the counter line from Richmond Brig House all the way up to uh, to City Hall, to Waterfront, I mean, with the exception of the bus, Those things have been empty for a week now. Go there. I, I ask anyone out there, go see if you can use it. And for some reason, they all hide behind procedure. They'll put up a sign, you know, oh, COVID's dangerous or whatever. They're all paying money for signs. When it comes down to it, everyone's passing the excuse on to someone else. David, thanks a lot. a green coat. Thanks a lot for the call. Thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate the call. Sorry to step on you, but we're out of time. Leslie, interesting discussion. Congratulations on the book, and thanks for coming on today. Thanks, anytime. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.